This is the Policy Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney, Australia. I'm Nick Cater, I'm the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Uh, in this and the next series of podcasts, we're going to be exploring some of the issues arising from the coronavirus pandemic, uh, which has uh, just uh, overtaken every public policy question imaginable right now. And the economic consequences of this are going to last for a long time and change, I think, the way we, we live and work quite substantially. So to try and navigate our way through some of those things, I've invited along Peter Curti. Peter is the Director of Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Program at the Centre for Independent Studies, and we've heard from him before on what to call a podcast. Peter, uh, welcome to the, the Policy Podcast. Thanks, Nick. Great to be with you. Um, this is a uniquely, probably not uniquely, but particularly difficult policy argument here where we're trying to balance up economic policy and health policy and welfare policy all in one basket. And it's a temptation, of course, to say, well, let's fix the economic bit or let's fix the medical side of things. But it seems to be they're inseparable. I think that's right. And I think what's confronted all governments around the world is the need to control the spread of the virus, to minimize the rate of infection so as not to overwhelm health services. Uh, which has meant closing down parts of the economy, or a lot of the economy, in fact, and making sure that people socially isolate and physically isolate from one another, and at the same time keeping enough of the economy ticking over to ensure that it doesn't become completely moribund. And I think it's a very difficult balance uh, to strike. And, and in, in Australia, the government of Scott Morrison has been really calibrating its response almost on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it, it's 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 almost antithetical to good economic uh, life, isn't it? The fact that we have to isolate one ourselves from one another if we're going to actually stop the spread of this disease. And yet, of course, we need to get together to... Uh, when we get together, we socialise, but we also conduct economic activity even without uh, imagining it we're doing it. Has it come to surprise to you just, just how much the economy is uh, affected by personal interaction? Yes, it it is a surprise to the extent that I've not lived through something like this before. In fact, we've not really had a global pandemic since we had the Spanish flu pandemic about a hundred years ago. But and so it's very surprising when walking through the centre of Sydney, where we are now, to see the streets deserted, normally very busy thoroughfares completely clear of people and traffic. That's that's very surprising. At the same time, I think it's it's not surprising because one realizes just how extensive uh, economic life uh, is in this country. And it's not just the economic factor. I think you touched on this uh, in your question. There is the impact on civil society, not just in terms of the interactions that we enjoy and we're accustomed to enjoy with one another, but when the state... Uh, assumes such a large degree of responsibility, which it has done and which, in my view, it had to do. Nonetheless, it makes it very difficult for the what Edmund Burke would have called the little battalions of society, the little platoons, to continue to function and to provide the sorts of services that are provided by the community and for the community uh, that government would not normally supply. So we're seeing a real uh, constriction of the organs of civil society at the same time as we're seeing a contraction of economic activity. 
And the government stepping in. Let's talk about the state. So it is quite an unusual situation in in um, in my experience that the state steps in, basically to keep the economy going at, at every level, to keep people's jobs, uh, to keep people's wages coming in, to keep businesses uh, ticking over, to to stop them, um, you know, going into debt. Uh, it's a big, big role. I mean, but at some point they've got to pull out of this, haven't they? Yes, they do. It is a big role. But it also is a reminder to us that, in fact, the state is the only entity that can command the resources necessary to perform this role. And when this crisis erupted and, and government measures began to be introduced, I and a lot of other people were thinking, how on earth can we afford to do this? This will saddle us with vast amounts of debt, even though interest rates are, of course, at a historically low level at the moment. But as the programs uh, have rolled out, and I, I see how it actually enables employers, small business owners to keep on staff, to keep their turnover, to make sure that we don't see a surge in the unemployed, although we are seeing that to an extent. As I see that program rolling out and the impact, I, I think it's actually a very good thing and a reminder that it's that the state still has an important role to play. But you're right, we don't want to see an enormous state grow and grow and grow and never contract, although, of course, state spending has never been as low as uh, some people in the centre-right like to think it is. State funding and state spending has always been high and has been getting higher in many respects. I think we'd want to be sure that the state withdraws from these areas of social and economic life uh, where it's had to take control. But in the uh, in the short term, it's very important that the state has done that because nobody else, no other entity could have done that uh, and could have provided the reassurance uh, to the Australian people. And just to add to that, I think that if one takes such crude measures as opinion polls, I think the Australian people across the board accept what uh, the Morrison government is doing and they're grateful for it and they're prepared to pay as a community, as a society. I think we're prepared to pay the cost of doing this because we see it benefits not only ourselves, uh, but our fellow citizens. But there's a moral question here, isn't there? The question of moral, uh, moral risk here. I mean, if, if the state, if we, if the state is always going to come and bail us out, uh, if the state in a bushfire, for instance, can be relied upon to, uh, you know, come and rebuild our property if we haven't insured it, if, if the state can be guaranteed to step in to bail out a business because it's, uh, it's been running its cash flow badly or whatever, I mean, there is a moral hazard question there, isn't there? Is this such extraordinary circumstances that we just simply push those arguments to one side? No, I don't think so. I think we have to uh, we have to weigh those arguments. Uh, people on the left of politics have been quick to say that government intervention demonstrates that market economics, that capitalism, has failed, and that you always need the state, and that they and they justify uh, the size and the extent of the state's role uh, in those terms. But I don't think that's what a lot of people in this country will want. We are, on the whole, uh, a conservative country. I don't mean necessarily socially, but economically, I think we are a conservative country. And I don't think we really want to see the state retain this kind of uh, involvement in our lives, the lives of businesses, the lives of communities, the lives of individuals and families that we have at the moment. You're right, I think there is a moral risk. I think it's one we have to weigh. Uh, at the moment, I think we just have to be aware that that's a question. It's too early for the state to withdraw. Although we are seeing 
Now, increasing amounts of debate about when the economy can be revived, when the restrictions can be lifted. And it'll be interesting to see as revival begins and as restrictions are lifted, to what extent the state will withdraw. This is a great uh, moment, I think, to be a Marxist. I mean, you, you, you'd be arguing, as you say, that, that the capitalism has failed, as you've been predicting for so long, and, uh, and, and, and we need to have a much different type of economy. I think it's quite serious. Commentators argue that, but um, I don't. I don't know. I. I. I don't. I, I, it seems to me that at the same time we are valuing, we are beginning to learn to value uh, free markets and understand that you know business activity, shopkeepers, people who own little cafes or little little food food stalls in the food courts, these are individual enterprising people, and 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 we need we need to let them have room to thrive, don't we? We do, and it's important to note in all this that. The reason the state has intervened is not because of a market failure. It's not because lots of businesses have been going under or failing to succeed. It's because we've been confronted with a health and economic and political emergency which has required very radical measures, very dramatic measures to be imposed very suddenly. One of the things that concerns me about this whole crisis is the number of businesses that have been run by committed entrepreneurs who put their life and soul into making their businesses work, seeing these businesses fail, because that's the life work and the life savings of many, many people. Can government, and government has said, I'm sorry, you've got to close. You cannot do business. I look at the cafes. I look at the at the, the restaurants, the, the pubs, any, any of those small businesses that are no longer functioning because they've been required to close. Not because they're not doing good business, but because the circumstances of the day do not permit continuing business. I, I think we need to protect those people, which is why I think it's good that, that, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know that it can be limitless, but that's why I think at this stage at any rate, uh, the, the wages of people who have been stood down have been underwritten and people, employers are being helped out in various economic ways through tax breaks, through, uh, through, uh, rent, uh, holidays. I think that's very, very important. You're right. This is, we need to preserve that, that, that economic fabric of society. And what people on the left, the critics on the left miss is that that society was not failing. Business was not failing. It's been overtaken by a set of uh, extraordinary circumstances. So let's think about the policy uh, challenge that led to these extraordinary uh, restrictions in, in the way we uh, interact and to the behavior of business. The policy challenge, correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, the policy challenge here is that, as we've seen overseas, the nature of this virus is it can lead to heavy demand for scarce health resources, principally um, the the uh, ICUs in hospitals and the ventilators and everything that goes with it. Uh, and, and if you get a rush of people needing that, the system simply becomes overwhelmed. And you get terrible outcomes, plus you also get ter- ter- terrible pictures on the TV news. That, I think, was the stated policy aim at the start, right? Or, or, or was it just, was the policy aim to save people's lives? And if the policy aim was to save people's lives, is that a realistic thing for government to, uh, to, to have an ambition to do? Well, there seem to be various views propounded by different groups of epidemiologists at the outset, but one of the really influential studies that guided the response of the British government was that from Imperial College, 
and this weighed the uh, the merits of nearly mitigating the disease by, for example, promoting the concept of herd community. You allowed the disease to get far enough into the population to generate a communal immunity that allows life to carry on. On the one hand, that was mitigation with suppression, where you you you, you effectively suppress economic and social life in order to suppress all transmission of the virus. Now, suppression, I think, we tended towards suppression in this country, uh, but it cannot, that kind of suppression, it seems to me, cannot go on indefinitely. And once the the, the, the curve has been flattened, to, to use a phrase that I don't think any of us were using six or eight weeks ago, once the curve has been flattened, as it appears to be flattened now in Australia, then some of those more dramatic measures intended to suppress the virus can begin to be lifted. So I think governments are working out what can they do, how suppression would attempt to remove, to eradicate the virus from a society. Can the economic cost of suppression be borne to the extent that it can't be? Suppression has to be lifted and we have to move towards mitigation. But that's why I think government is, is calculating and calibrating its response almost on a daily basis. This is this 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 virus. I think is going to be with us uh, until we find a va- vaccine or or some other medical solution. It seems to me uh, the nature of it, where you get um, as many as 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 many as five times the number of identified carriers have no symptoms at all. We never notice them going around the community with this potentially spreading the disease. So I I can't see how you can stamp it out altogether until we get the vaccine, which will be what twelve. 18 months away. So in the meantime, what's the most sensible way to do this? Should we, for instance, start looking at the way this virus is particularly harmful to uh, people over 60 or 70 principally and people with a pre-existing uh, medical condition and try and protect those rather than um, you know, focus on backpackers on Bondi Beach? Well, if you'd asked me that question a week ago, I would have agreed with you that we should focus on people in that older age group. But now, over the weekend, we've seen the British Prime Minister, who's 55, end up in intensive care, and it it looks like, a, at the moment, as we speak at the beginning of April, it's a very serious. He's in a very serious condition, um, and we've also seen instances of younger people and some children being taken to hospital who have been positive. Now, are those outliers? I don't know, but it looks as though the disease can also take hold in uh, in other demographic groups in the community, sure, but it doesn't it doesn't kill people in those younger age groups. I mean, the deaths no. are very rare. No, and kill people is is a, is a difficult phrase because there's a difference between dying from COVID nineteen, <clears throat> the disease that that coronavirus leads to, and a different and and dying with COVID nineteen. Now, some people who are in frail health with underlying health conditions who are elderly and have died with the virus, may well have died uh, without it. And so I think it's, again, very hard at the moment to know who is dying from it and who is dying with it. Which I think brings us back to that policy question which we phrased phrased, uh, at the start. So the policy uh, challenge is to keep our ICU units functioning properly and not get overloaded. Then it does matter. It matters a great deal if if people end up there, even if they end up dying, I guess. Yes, it does. And I think we need to remember, without wanting to, I don't want to sound callous about this, but 
people are always dying. People are dying every day. They die on the roads. They die from natural causes. Uh, people are dying every day in Australia. The question is, with, when a particular form of illness manifests itself, can our health service cope with the rapid increase in demand in this instance? Do we have enough beds in ICUs? Do we have, have enough ventilators uh, to put people on who need it? Once we get to a point where our health system can manage it, we can be sure that it can manage through increased supply of, of, of those scarce resources that you mentioned a few moments ago, I imagine it would be easier to begin to resume normal life. Not completely necessarily, but to begin to resume normal life. And maybe it's younger people who go back to work first, and, and maybe it's older people who remain secluded for a while. When the Premier of New South Wales says that all these restrictions will have to remain in place until a vaccine is found, I frankly wonder whether that really is feasible, because, as you said, vaccine could be at least uh, 12 months away. There may be some m medical intervention that's possible between now and the and the marketing of a vaccine. But can we really live with this for that long? I don't know. But once the health service is capable of meeting a, 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 an anticipated surge in demand, I would think it is important to get people back to work. Because after all, we have to consider the mental health impacts of people who are isolated, a lot of people living alone, a lot of people living in flats, living in apartments who are who are removed from their immediate circle, families that are separated, uh, people who are worrying about their work and their jobs, for example. Uh, once we, We've got to take into account that mental health impact as well and, and add that as a factor into the mix. Yeah, I think we should talk a bit further about that. Before we do, though, I should just um, remind people this is the policy podcast from the Menzies Research Centre with my guest, Peter Curti, the Director of the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Programme at the Centre for Independent Studies. And the other thing I think I should point out um, is when we're recording this, because we know um, that these podcasts have quite a long tail life, so people could be listening several months hence. And the way things are changing so quickly, we should point out we're recording this, what, uh, mid first half of April, uh, just before Easter, uh, we looks like the uh, number of reported new cases is uh, beginning to decline. We may have be over this curve, and there's some optimism about that. But who knows what's going to happen between now and uh, um, a month's time? If somebody's listening to the podcast, then um, Peter, you you correctly point out there's a there, you know we focus on the economic cost uh, and, and the great shock that there will be to our economy and the unemployment that follows from that. But there's a, a non-economic cost, if you like, one that's paid in people's uh, well-being, in their, the amenity of their life, their existence. And uh, it seems to me it's very easy for many of the policy makers, indeed us, I think, who, who um, you know, live in, in uh, reasonable size accommodation and the kids have left home and all that sort of thing. It's easy for us to sort of talk about isn't it wonderful to work from home and, and have a bit of time, um, you know, with, with the family, uh, your immediate family at home? But look, it's very different, isn't it, for somebody uh, in other circumstances, say a single parent in a one-bedroom flat in uh, in uh, Western Sydney or or you know Northern Melbourne or something like that. They're going to be having their experience of this is going to be quite different, and I would suggest very hard. Yes, I. 
think that's undeniable, and I think for a lot of people this is hard. Um, I have a number of younger colleagues at the Centre for Independent Studies, and I keep in touch with them just to make sure that this rapid, sudden change in their way of life is something that's not beginning to weigh too heavily on them. The thing, of course, is though that we are all in this situation together, and I think that that is actually a, a help. You know, extroverts who are used to seeing lots of people and having a hectic social life all the time will find it hard. But at the same time, I think we can draw comfort from the fact that this is not something that's just being imposed upon you or upon me, but upon us as a community. And what I see is a real, uh, you know, in the circles in which I move, I see a really concerted effort to maintain contact with people through having uh, virtual meetings, virtual drinks, virtual gatherings uh, using uh, you, you know, using like Zoom or Skype or FaceTime in order to maintain connection as best as possible. Uh, I, I think the fact that we're all going through this is a help, actually. And I think, you know, just going back to the issue of health resources, I think the fact that we know that health resources are scarce we know the doctors are making decisions about who gets what treatment. Uh, something, of course, the doctors have done for a long time in this process called triage, which goes back, inter interestingly, up to the Napoleonic Wars, when a, um, a surgeon uh, in one of Napoleon's armies invented the system of separating. That's where the word comes from, for separating cases out in terms of who needs urgent treatment, who is beyond treatment, and who can wait. I think all of us are apprehensive at some level that if we needed treatment, it might not be available. We've been very accustomed to knowing that if we rock up at a hospital, we will be treated. What if it would happen that we go to a hospital and suddenly we're not able to be treated because there isn't a bed, there isn't a ventilator, or there isn't something that we need? And I think the fact that that's um, a possibility that looms over the heads of us all helps us to understand, even if we don't articulate it in these terms, help us to understand that there is something very important going on here and that it is about the well-being of the community and about the well-being of the individual as well. You know, I'm, I'm wondering what the chances are that we can actually turn some of these immediate challenges around and, and get some long-term social reforms uh, going. I mean, for instance, I notice um, just even walking here today, I'm recording this in our uh, empty office in the Sydney CBD in a virtually empty office building, uh, but as you walk the streets of Sydney nowadays, it's very interesting. You, you, you see a lot of construction workers building offices that you wonder uh, how much demand there's going to be for those on the other side. But the other thing that I've become very conscious of, Peter, um, uh, are the number of homeless people um, that are there. They, they can't lock themselves away anywhere. Uh, and, and, of course, in amongst the homeless, very, very large uh, number of uh, mentally ill people, um, you know, tragically large. Uh, I, I, I mentioned that because the statistics from South Korea, which we've seen, which break down uh, the comorbidities um, that, that, that are associated with death from COVID-19, uh, one of the big ones is mental illness. I think in 19% of cases there was a comorbidity was noted down as mental illness. Uh, and I think you can see why why that is, even if they're in relatively good shape in other ways and often people on the streets aren't uh, they find it very hard just to cope with the everyday business of life let alone all the hand washing and all these things we have to go through and, and you can't 
you know, impossible to keep yourself isolated or, or in fully hygienic conditions if you're, if you're sleeping on the street. So can we, do you think we could think about how we could use this uh, crisis, never waste a good crisis, as Winston Churchill was supposed to have said, how we can use it to tackle, some, really put some muscle into tra- tackling some intractable, intractable social problems like that? That's a, a good question. <clears throat> the British columnist Rod Little wrote one of his um, characteristically pungent uh, columns about this very recently in the last few days, in which he talked about the impact of working from home, that in fact more people will discover that they can work from home, and companies will now not be able to say, no, you can't work from home because we have been working from home, those of us who can. That that means that office space, and you just touched on this, all that vast, uh, plushly fitted office space is redundant. And he was saying, why don't we make these uh, these useless offices, or these offices that are no longer needed, perhaps to put it more accurately, into uh, refuges for the the homeless, for the mentally ill? Why don't we use this space rather than just let it stay vacant? Uh, one of the things that, and I thought that he, Little had made some really quite interesting points there, one of the concerns that um, that the culture program that I, I head at the CIS has at the moment is the impact of this crisis on a number of factors. One is domestic violence. People are living together. Uh, they may not be used to living together in such close quarters for so many hours in the day. What will will will, a, will there, we see an increase in tension? Will we see an increase in domestic violence? The other is the increased consumption of alcohol. Uh, we know that alcohol sales have surged because pubs are closed, so people are buying the stuff in. Uh, and drinking it without the restraints that come from drinking in a, in a pub where you actually have to leave at some point. And then thirdly, and most grimly, is suicide. What, what impact will this have on people who, who may be inclined to take their own lives and may in fact be pushed to take their own lives? These are really important concerns and we, uh, in my colleagues in the culture program, are, are looking at this. We're beginning an evaluative survey was trying to work out how great is this risk uh, and not when I say suicide I mean I'm going to add in to that other manifestations of serious mental health issues to what extent can we take account of that to what extent can we ameliorate uh, the impact uh, of those um, of those health concerns it's a really important question um, homelessness is a just to, to, to speak about homelessness for a moment that's, I think, a, is a very pressing issue. And last year, we produced a report on homelessness that suggested, in fact, the, the problem with homelessness was not that there wasn't adequate accommodation for homeless people, but the system was failing homeless people uh, because it was not encouraging them to move to accommodation where they could. So I think this throws up a lot of questions for us. We have, ironically enough, in our, we have, uh, in, 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 we don't have enough spare capacity in hospitals, but in the CBD areas, as you've mentioned, there is enormous spare capacity. Can we use that capacity in a different way? And will we think differently about that capacity as uh, as the virus begins to abate? Homelessness is such a difficult problem, isn't it? I mean, I um, talk about my own experience. For instance, I, I, I spent my gap year um, between school and university in my late teens uh, working, you know, on a program with uh, trying to help uh, homeless people in Birmingham in the UK and I must admit I came away by the end of it thinking there's no solution here but I think there is I think if we focus on 
something like mental health, for instance, you know, how can we redress some of the damage that was done by the reforms that put um, mentally ill out into the community where many of them can't cope, for instance? Could we deal with that aspect of homelessness? I think we might be getting somewhere, and it's kind of uncharacteristic in a way for a Liberal government to think proactively about these things, but maybe this is a time when we do do need to do that. Yes, I think so, because, I mean, the homeless are people themselves, and they will have health needs. And because, as you said that they a moment ago, they're not able to observe the same standards of hygiene that are required of the rest of us, demanded of the rest of us at the moment. The, one fears that the, the impact of COVID-19 on the homeless will be even greater than it is amongst other members of the community. I think it's very important to remember that the homeless are members of our community as much as anybody else, and that we owe them uh, duties, we owe them obligations to look after them, to care for them, and to help to meet their needs as best we can. It's very hard when homeless people actually choose to be homeless and decide that that's the way of life they want. I, I've met a number of people over the years in Sydney who've actually decided that no, they act, they really do want to sleep in a Hyde Park, for example. That's a, a lifestyle choice. I hesitate to use that phrase, but that is, is a, a way of life that they choose to adopt. Well, even if people do choose to adopt it, is there a way in which we can make sure that their health and well-being is is, is looked after? Uh, so I think that is a that is an important social, uh, economic, and political consideration. There's another policy issue which um, has been sort of you know in the back of our minds, uh, sitting in the bottom of our intray somewhere for some time. And I suspect yours too at the CIS, and that's the the questions around aging. So uh, you know we know we have a, a a population that is aging and will continue aging. You know the proportion of people over 65 will continue to grow till the end of the century. Um, you know, if you look at the projections by the Bureau of Statistics. So that's, that throws up all sorts of questions. Um, uh, one of which, of course, is, is loneliness. How do people cope in homes? Um, you know, when they don't have anybody, um, regular contact with anybody, they don't have somebody to help them. Um, this is something suddenly we've become confronted with in a very dramatic way. And, um, I wonder how we can deal with this question without you know, getting the government to set up all sorts of agencies. How can we get the community, how can we bottle that community spirit and the community goodwill uh, in a way that can assist, um, you know, people, but I'm thinking particularly about the elderly, who, who, who really need a little bit of assistance? That's a very good question and an enormous topic. I think loneliness is a tremendous problem in our society, and it's easily masked by... Uh, the availability of social media and the opportunities to interact in a digital way with so many people both locally, nationally and around the world. But we tend to think that who can possibly be lonely in a world that's so interconnected and yet it's a very real uh, problem. And not just for the elderly, uh, for, for the younger people as well, people who are socially isolated uh, or whose circumstances may simply not permit them to engage with others as they'd like to. Coming back to something I, uh, something we talked about earlier uh, in our discussion, I think this is a very important role that community groups play. And whether it's, uh, you know, uh, whether it's book groups that are able to do things online now or church groups that are trying to do uh, things online as are other religious groups, uh, synagogues and, and mosques, um, whether they are just secular gatherings of enthusiasts, um, car clubs, for example, that bring people together around and allow them to forge bonds around common interests. 
when those groups can't meet, I think there will come to be a price. There will be a price that, that, that we have to pay. Um, I'm um, an Anglican minister of religion involved with a, a congregation, a parish in the, on the lower North Shore. Now, a lot of our members are elderly people. They can do email, for example, or they can probably do Facebook if their grandchildren have shown them how to do that. But things like Zoom or Skype may be a lot harder for them, and they simply may not have uh, the the infrastructure that allows them to do that. What sort of lives are those people living now? How are we able to mitigate the loneliness that those kind people in those kinds of situations uh, might be experiencing? It's a very big question, and I think in some ways, because loneliness is is a hidden social problem in the sense that we don't see it in the way in which we see alcoholism, for example, to take an example. Um, because it's, to that extent, it's a more hidden problem. It's not as identifiable, and it's not as easy to find uh, to find the answer. With alcohol, you say, well, stop drinking. You find various strategies to stop drinking. With loneliness, it's not just about meeting people, but are questions about self-esteem, sense of, of meaning and purpose and the value that one places in one's own life. How do we build those up? Those are very big questions. But I do think that civil society, the, the, the groups of civil society, the community groups, uh, which are such a, an important part of our society, have an important role to play. When they can't function as they ought to be able to function, what impact will that have? I think I'm learning a lot about civil society right now. It's becoming starkly clear to me uh, what where the strengths of our civil society lie uh, um, and and it's coming through to me in um, you know why it is that I'm so uncomfortable with, with some of these more uh, authoritarian if I can use that word forms of enforcing social distancing rules we've seen it in this country um, New Zealand uh, is particularly um, uh, tough on it Jacinta uh, Ardern the, the Prime Minister uh, proudly called herself the enforcer which is a horrible word to me for a democratically elected prime minister to use but but there we are and in new zealand um uh you you have what they're calling the bonking ban so you're not allowed to by law you're not allowed to enter somebody else's house or the house you don't live in uh with one exception and that is that if you're a, a child in joint custody then you can go from one parent the other but an adult can't and uh since the police are out in force uh Enforcing uh, 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 you know, social distancing room rules in in public places. Don't even think about a park bench. I mean, basically, if you don't, uh, if if you're separated from a lover, if you live in different premises, you you the the the, the state, the actions of the state are saying that you can't uh, get together. You can't have any form of intimacy uh, until this is over. Uh, uh, that that's like ten steps too far for me, Peter. How do you feel about it? Well. It's interesting that um, <clears throat> that is being so rigorously enforced in uh, in New Zealand. A, a week or so ago, Victoria attempted to introduce what was known uh, rather more elegantly as a love ban. And I think that the Andrews government was just shouted down about that. And they had to concede that, in fact, that sort of uh, those sorts of meetings uh, were important. And now, as I understand it, I think every state in Australia does permit partners to meet and to move between one another's homes uh, and the reason that's been allowed is because it's seen as an aspect of care and that you that, that physical intimacy emotional intimacy is important for 
for mental uh, well-being, and so it's been it's been justified, if I can use that word, or, or um, excused on the basis of it being an important component of of care. Uh, but yeah, I think you're you're right that we these social restrictions are new. Uh, and a few weeks ago, I think we felt very uncomfortable about them. And yet, as you yourself mentioned in one of the uh, Menzies newsletters, people are becoming more comfortable. We are um, we are keeping our distance. We are not shaking hands now that we're, the way in which we used to. We're not embracing people in the way in which we used to. My question is, will we ever go back to that way of life? Will I ever shake anybody's hand again? I think once we've lived for long enough, um, meeting one another, as you and I met this afternoon in the lift lobby here at, uh, at the men's offices, but we didn't shake hands. As that goes on for long enough, will we ever shake hands again? I wonder. Yeah, I, 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 it's extraordinary that the New Zealand government, just, just to wrap up this one, was uh, very advanced in saying, well, the state has no role in um, ruling who and who cannot have intimate relations based on gender orientation, but they feel they can do it based on geographical orientation. It's quite extraordinary to me. But look, um, let's move on. I mean, yes, people, I think people are, uh, are, are becoming comfort, comfortable with this, but I don't think comfortable with the, the idea that the police can go around, uh, as happened in New South Wales last weekend and, and fine, um, a, a young woman who's in a car having driving lessons because she's gone too far from her home or some, Something. I mean, that's that's just outrageous. But as you as you mentioned, I mean, I have commented and and written about how people are uh, observing the social distancing rules themselves. They're very efficient. Uh, that polling shows that. Uh, we polling from uh, Roy Morgan um, a little while back showed that seventy four percent of people in New South Wales and Victoria are are isolating themselves. That's not just doing the social distancing, but isolating themselves. And and ninety five percent said they do so instructed by their doctor. So I I just and it, this to me is our civil society, Peter. This is the thing that you're you're studying at the Centre for Independent Studies. We have a civil society where the police govern by the consent of of the community. They don't govern by some edict of state, and that generally we rely on people to do the right thing, to understand what the right thing is, and and, and to do it out of respect. For others, is that too starry-eyed of you? No, I agree with you completely. And I think the sight of um, the police driving their cars into Rushcutters Bay, parks at Rushcutters Bay, and confronting mums with strollers and dads with playing with their kids, who were, uh, I think, maintaining appropriate degrees of social distance, was... I mean, it was laughable in one sense, and, and, and I'm pleased that the, the press picked up on that and made, and made a big fuss about it. But it was also it, it was also completely inappropriate because I think it, I agree with you that the policing depends upon trust. There is a bond of trust between constable and citizen, which has to be observed. It has to be nourished. It cannot be taken for granted. Go too far and give too much power to the constable, or allow the constable to wield too much of a cudgel over the citizen, and then that bond of trust is broken. I don't think we are. Uh, living in a police state. I know some people have used that phrase. I don't, I don't think we're living in a police state at all. But I think that the heavy-handed approach of the police, at least here in New South Wales and in Sydney, which I've seen, uh, is unattractive. And I think 
irksome in a way because it just goes against the grain of our character. Tell Australians that you need to do something. Tell us we've got to observe this for our own good. And I think I, have to say, I think the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is doing a very good job yes, and has got, has got a good style. Tell them what we need to do, but then don't send in the coppers uh, to enforce in, in very draconian and heavy-handed ways these rules. That gets everybody's backs up, and I think that, that that's not a good thing at all. But it is, um, um, I mean, unfortunately, uh, at times like this, at times of a national emergency, and that's what this is, uh, it is necessary for us to um, um, surrender, if you like, temporarily some of the things, some of the rights we take for granted. That's, that's a given, I think. Uh, which brings me on, I think, to the idea of track and trace. You know, one of the really effective ways we can help um, eradicate or stop the spread of this virus is by tracing um, everybody who's been in contact with somebody who's just been um, identified as a carrier. Uh, and the use of mobile phone data is is uh, is uh, is one tool we could use. It's being used extensively in places like South Korea and um, and Taiwan. Um, and uh, in the states, I see. I think there's a voluntary program there where you can download an app. And, uh, and with permission, if you, if you're shown to be carrying, um, the virus, if you, if you have a positive test, you can adopt this app, which will allow other people, uh, to see whether they've been in the same vicinity as you at any point. And, and, you know, the, the, what you can do with this data is amazing. You can trace hotspots, you can get in touch with people. And yet some people feel this is an infringement of liberty to allow, uh, you know, some government tracking agency to get hold of your, your data in that way. What do you think, Peter? Well, I think it is an infringement of liberty. The question is whether it's an acceptable infringement of liberty. And if it's intended, if it's an infringement of liberty that is intended to promote the greater good of the community and protect the health and well-being of citizens, then I think it's one that we can, uh, we can bear to live with, at least uh, for the time being. There are two questions about this that, that this issue raises to me. The first is, how much do we know about what surveillance the government exercises now and the security services exercise now over us? How much do they know? My guess is that it's an awful lot and we don't think much about it or we don't know much about it uh, or we don't care much about it or all three. So I think already the state has got tremendous capacities for surveillance of, the citizen, of, of its citizens. The second re- question related to this is that if we are prepared to accept an infringement of civil liberties, to use that phrase, for the greater good of the community in this health crisis. Will we see those, uh, will we see the, the state withdraw its surveillance? Will we see those liberties restored? Will we see greater respect for, uh, for civil liberties, for human rights? And will we be sure that the government has ceased using those, um, those technologies? You're right. I mean, I think Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea have made extensive use of um, of such data. Japan, which has had a more relaxed approach. You and I met in the streets of Sydney a week ago, and uh, we were talking about Japan, which at that stage was looking reasonably okay. Well, this week, uh, a week later, uh, Shinzo Abe has declared a state of emergency because not enough was done. So I think we see the value of tracking in this society. We see how how we need to know where the infected, where the carriers of coronavirus have gone. We see that particularly with the fiasco of the Ruby Princess, which is still playing out in political circles here. We need to know, 
Is there a way of finding out? Yes, there is. Are we prepared to tolerate that those methods being used? Yes, we are. Do they need to stop being used at some point? Yes, I think so. But you're right. I mean, the key thing is is what? How do we go? How do we ensure that we go back to a more normal relationship between the state and the and and, and the authorities and and individuals after this? And I thought one of the most um, thought-provoking interventions in this debate was by Jonathan Sumption, the former Supreme Court judge in the UK, who wrote a, a piece in the Times and then gave uh, a, a really um, compelling uh, interview on BBC Radio 4. We'll just listen to a bit of that. The real problem is that when human societies lose their freedom, it's not usually because tyrants have taken it away. It's usually because people willingly surrender their freedom in return for protection against some external threat. And the threat is usually a real threat, but usually exaggerated. And that's what I fear we are seeing now. The pressure on politicians has come from the public. They want action. They don't pause to ask whether the action will work. They don't ask themselves whether the cost will be worth paying. They want action anyway. And anyone who has studied history will recognize here the classic symptoms of collective hysteria. So, so yeah, that was Jonathan Sumption, the former Supreme Court judge in the UK, and uh, last week's last year's Reef Lecture. Reef lecturer on the BBC, and those Reef lectures are still available and well worth listening to. But look, on on Jonathan Sumption's point there, he makes the point that uh, it, there is a pattern of states who have authoritarian ambition to use a national crisis, a, an outside threat, real or imagined, as a chance to impose uh, ex- extraordinary uh, state of emergency measures and then never relinquish them. And and we've seen this uh, historically, of course, in the uh, the rise of the dictatorships in the 1930s, but but more more recently too in uh, in in the rise of uh, autocratic states and autocratic leaders uh, in other parts of the world. So there is a pattern there. Do you think there's any danger of that happening here, Peter, from your your knowledge and understanding of our civil society? I think there's always a danger. Of it happening, that is, there is always a risk that it could happen, um, and I think <clears throat> it requires us to be vigilant about the exercise of state power, the exercise of police powers. It underscores the importance of police accountability. If we're talking about the way in which the police have gone about their duties, I don't think we should ever take it for granted, and I think it's the job of one of the tasks of uh, of all people working in the media, for example to hold those who bear that, that sort of power to account and hold them to account. Uh, in fact, I think the media, the, the, the fourth estate, is a, has got a very important role to play in the health of our democratic institutions as a whole, which is why I think a free press is so important for, uh, for, for a healthy society. The country, as you were making those remarks, the country that came to mind was uh, Hungary, where Viktor Orban has really used this crisis to uh, extend his own personal authority and to extend the, the, the authority of, of the state and his government. We don't want that to happen here. Whilst there is a risk, I don't think it's, it's, it's a very high risk because of the way in which um, government works in this country. We, are, we have a federal government, we have a commonwealth government, a series of state governments. We're not as decentralized as, as the United States. 
um, states and federal governments usually <clears throat> are of a different complexion. I, I think that there are there are balances and there are checks and there are controls that can assist us, but I don't think we can be complacent, particularly since now we've seen just what the state can do and what it can require of us. And I've seen police exercising the authority to tell people to go home and get off the streets. Well, we want that to stop. We don't want that to go on. Will we make sure that it does stop? I think we have to be vigilant about that. Uh, Victor Orban um, in Hungary. It's interesting you mentioned that. I, yes, they have brought in uh, the same kind of measures as elsewhere. There's some concern that he hasn't got a, a use-by date on those laws. But uh, I don't know whether you saw it, but our, 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 our um, a good friend and interlocutor, uh, John, John O'Sullivan, who is in uh, based in Budapest for most of the time these days, I thought wrote a quite a reassuring piece in the week that uh, said that in his judgment that that uh, this was perfectly, uh, you know, this was all within in the bounds of reasonable behaviour. And the thing about Victor Orban, of course, is the left just just wants to hate him because he does things that others don't, like restrict borders um, to the influx of of um, of uh, you know asylum seekers. And yet, in this case, those sort of policies seem to have paid off for the country. Uh, it's one of the reasons, probably one of the big reasons, why they're 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 more on a par with us or New Zealand than. Uh, some of their neighbours in in Europe, but it does bring up this question of um, uh, how we're going to think about um, globalisation and, and national boundaries in the wake of this. You'd imagine, wouldn't you, Peter, that there's going to be some reassessment, some re-moving re of the boundaries, a, a, more of a move back to the idea that actually that's a nation state is important. You know that we are, we do need to have uh, the capacity to sustain ourselves in. Vital things like oil and um, and uh, medicines to think about a few, and that there 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 have to be central sens sensible boundaries to the globalization that's occurred in the last uh, uh, few decades. I think we're already seeing that, uh, and Hungary is an interesting e example. I, I think I mean, you're right that the left revile Orbán, and yet Orbán retains a, a degree of popularity in his country and is doing things that is. That, that are well favoured by uh, by intelligent and thoughtful commentators such as John O'Sullivan. Uh, of course, the thing that Orban did was throw up borders around Hungary during the time of the refugee crisis. And what we see now is a huge uh, number of cases uh, of uh, COVID-19 in Spain, in Italy, in in Germany. Although there are high rates of testing in Germany, there are high rates of testing in Germany. But we're seeing the the impact, uh, the health impact. Of having open borders, and suddenly we're discovering, in fact, that in fact open borders are not the way in which to safeguard the, the health and well-being of communities, and so borders become important. I, I think the, the 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 importance of having border integrity, if I may use that phrase, uh, is becoming very clear to us. I mean, we're an island continent here, but uh, we have put checks on people arriving. We've put checks on people leaving. Um, we have uh, restricted movement between within the states, I and mean, the states themselves have have done that. Um, a few years ago, when uh, when the Prime Minister John Howard, in an election campaign, uh, used a remark about uh, about borders and saying that it will be for the government to determine, for the for, for Australia to determine who comes in, there was outcry on the left. Yet we are in that very situation now, where we do need to determine who will come in and who will leave. 
so I think we're seeing uh, we're seeing uh, at least an acceptance. I'm not sure it's a universal acceptance, but I think a, a, an acceptance across the political board that in situations like this, the boundaries of the nation state are very important. But I don't think it spells the end of globalization as such. I mean, I think what we are seeing here are high levels of global cooperation uh, that epidemiological information, medical information, uh, all this is being shared now between countries in an attempt to uh, gain control over the spread of the virus and the management of, of, of the disease that it causes. So I think global cooperation won't abate. But the idea that somehow the boundaries of the nation state are, are no longer important uh, will will not gain much traction at all. In fact, I think on the whole, people see the value of having to control uh, movement across borders in order to protect the health and well-being. Peter, we've been uh, talking, I think, in in uh, to you as in your capacity as uh, more in your role as director for culture, prosperity, and civil society at the CIS than in your other job as minister of the Anglican Church of Australia. Uh, just thinking about this, if you were to put a a a spiritual framework around this, a framework of faith. How do we deal with this? How do we cope with what's going on? It's a very interesting question. I think, uh, speaking as a as a religious believer, uh, I want to say that I don't believe that God is absent in times of human crisis. Uh, it can feel as though we are left to our own devices and that we've been abandoned, that God is not here. But but uh, in, in the Judeo Christian tradition, the there is a a, a strong belief that God is present in all the circumstances of human life. So we see disruption, we see very changed patterns of living, we see hardship in various forms. Is God with us in the midst of that? Yes, I believe that's the case. And when one looks at, uh, at the Psalms, which are an important part of Scripture for Christians and for Jews, uh, the, we see the, the whole range of emotions and the whole range of experiences being, being played out and being addressed by the psalmist. So times of diversity, bad times, challenging times. Is God with us? Yes. I think that's that's one. That's the first thing I'd want to say. And to find ways of of exploring that and to uh, ways of reassuring people who may doubt that that is the truth, because I believe it is the truth. The second thing is that 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 religious communities are about just that. They're about community. They're about the coming together of people for the purposes of worship, the purposes of sharing uh, a, a common life. Now, in our modern society, that doesn't mean that we live together and eat together all the time, but we share a common life to the extent that a congregation comes together on a weekly basis and meets and enjoys fellowship with one another. Uh, and I think that there is an injunction upon all members of religious communities to be mindful of their neighbors within those communities and to ensure that those who are less well able to look after themselves or who are vulnerable through age or physical disability are cared for. But of course that is not a care that is contained simply within the, uh, within the community itself. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth, the founder of, of Christianity, talked a lot about the importance of caring for one's neighbor, that we need to love one's neighbor as we love ourselves. Uh, and that that was one of the two great commandments that he gave to his followers. So we have to be mindful of the needs of our neighbor. And that doesn't mean somebody who 
comes to church, somebody who shares our point of view, but our neighbor is the person amongst whom we live. Our neighbor is the person we live with and, and, and we move among. And there is an injunction to be mindful of the needs of our neighbor, that all of us are created in the image of God, Christians believe, and that that places upon us a duty to see in the other person that image of God and to treat that person accordingly. So I think an important point to make is that that principle, love thy neighbor as thyself, seems to me to be the fundamental principle that makes our civil society work. It's what, you know, it's the Australian thing to do is to look after your neighbor and to help those who are in less need. That's right, because that's come into, that's come into, um, moral discourse as the so-called golden rule that you treat others as you would like to be treated yourself. That's the golden rule. And I think it's about seeing, one doesn't have to be a believer in God to see that in fact that's a very important foundational principle for for our social and communal life. That I see myself reflected in another person and that I'm going to treat my neighbor, I'm going to treat you as I would want to be treated myself. That establishes um, a, a pattern of behavior. It establishes a standard of behavior that we can each of us apply regardless of our, whether or not we believe in God. Well, thank you, Peter. I think we've got more than we uh, we bargained for today. We've covered everything from epidemiology to uh, ec- the economics of supply and demand to policing to the, the, the proper role of the state. And, of course, a nice, uh, uh, for me anyway, I think it's always useful to, to think of things in in other in, in other contexts and your and your thoughts at the end they're very good thanks peter what are you what are you where, where, where are you putting your efforts now at the cis well we are um all confronted of course by this health crisis and we're working on a project that brings together our experts in education our experts in social policy our experts in economics uh, and my own group the cultural prosperity program to look at a project, to work, contribute to a broader project that will lead us from pandemic to prosperity. Peter Curdy, thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Policy Podcast from the Mentors Research Centre. If you enjoyed that, then please uh, share us through social media, give us five stars, those other things. And if you want to support free content like this, Uh, please consider giving a donation to the Menzies Research Centre. You can find out how at menziesrc.org. That's menziesrc.org.